Howdy, fellow gamers, and welcome to The Five Buy, your bi-weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews. In this week's episode, Nicole discovers mystery words in the cooperative party game Just One, Ruth seizes the day in Stefan Feld's Carpe Diem, I trade goods in the fishing village of Yokohama, Luke pledges fealty to the king in Lancaster, and Mike sends his faction to the battlefield in Wildlands. Here's Nicole. What if I told you there was a cooperative party board game, and that it was actually really, really good? Dear listener, let me introduce you to just one. I know there's some great co-op party or large group games out there, but just one piques a different interest. A game where you're trying to give unique one-word clues to help a person guess what their prompt word is could fall really flat. But in practice, it's really a light and silly hybrid type of party game. Just One was released in 2018 by Repost Productions, designed by Ludovic Rudy and Bruno Sautur. Before I'd had a chance to try it, I'd actually already purchased a copy based on strength of word of mouth and a friend telling me about the gameplay. I'd seen some images on social media of people playing and really had no idea what I was looking at, but was nonetheless intrigued. And as soon as I got it out of the box and played, I knew I'd made the right decision. Just One can be played with as few as three players up to a maximum of seven. I don't really recommend any less than four. A game takes approximately 20 minutes to play. The group starts with 13 prompt cards, each listing five words. An active player is chosen, and they prompt the card facing out, randomly selecting a number from one to five. The rest of the table will then secretly write a one-word clue on their little whiteboard easel relating to that prompt. Once they're done, the active player closes their eyes and the rest of the players will compare their clues. Any duplicate clues are turned face down, because there can be just one. The rest are turned to the active player, who'll then open their eyes and try to guess the prompt based on those clues. If they guess correctly, that card becomes a point. If not, the card is discarded along with another from the deck of 13, and play proceeds clockwise to the next guesser. Depending on how well the players do over the rounds, you may end up playing through all 13 cards, or maybe you'll end up bombing out and getting through only six or so rounds. When all is said and done, you'll tally up the number of successfully guessed cards and get yourself a score from the rulebook, perhaps on the lower end, where you'll have encouraging scores like, that's a good start, try again, or you're in the average, can you do better? Or maybe you're up at the top with, your friends must be impressed, or perfect score. Honestly, once you've played just one, you're only ever going to compare how you've done to previous plays of the game. It's all for the fun of it, not really your score. More than any of the scoring or rules, what strikes me as the best part of just one is the mental gymnastics that players go through every round. With any given prompt, there may be some obvious clues to give. But wait, what if someone else decides to give that clue? So now I have to think of something different. So. For example, the prompt sword immediately conjures up blade. So I want to think of something a little different, like duel, or maybe hilt. Meanwhile, that someone else is going through exactly the same thing and may just end up with the same alternative clue as you. Oh, it's happened. Whether or not you're playing with people you know can also have some bearing on the guessing, like any party game with clues. I recall one game where the prompt was drag, and a good half the table made references to RuPaul's Drag Race, which zoomed right past me as I don't watch much, if any, reality TV. I stumbled through, though, 
managing to cobble together an idea based on the table's variety of clues. Being able to think creatively and help your guests without being too outside the box is a really fun and often funny challenge. And because you're trying to get that satisfaction of having your active player guess correctly, there's no stress of competition to worry about. You just want to do your best. I highly recommend bringing this to conventions as it'll be played back to back effortlessly. In fact, you might find it hard to limit yourself to just the seven players. I have on occasion broken the rules to add an eighth player as the active player really needs to just hold a card while the rest of the table writes on their easels. And trust me, you'll have spectators. This game is intriguing and magnetic and exudes fun into any room it's played in. Just One is probably my favorite party game of recent years. There's no pressure like really wordy word games and no improv like some party games. Just great, pure guessing fun. I'd say if you've enjoyed Codenames or games like Insider or Time's Up, Just One should certainly be on your radar. I'm Nicole, and thanks for listening. You can find me writing at the Daily Worker Placement blog and co-hosting the Great Way Games podcast. Hello, 5 by listeners. It's Ruth here, returning to old habits as I talk about yet another Stefan Feld design. The designer had two titles released at last year's Essence Spiel, one of which has been getting a ton of play at my table. Published by Ravensburger Aaliyah, 2018's Carpe Diem has two to four players vying for tiles and scoring opportunities as they try to build the most impressive Roman estate. A basic turn in Carpe Diem involves the active player moving along a path to a location where they'll select a tile and place it on their board. Tiles show landscape features and buildings. Some buildings are contained within one tile, but all of the landscapes and most of the buildings only partially feature on a tile, meaning players have to complete them by placing matching tiles next to one another. Once a player places a tile, they'll check to see if a feature has been completed, and if so, get to take an associated action. Things like getting resources, collecting a new tile, moving on the scroll track, or getting to choose endgame scoring cards. Players play four rounds in total, scoring at the end of each round, before telling their final scores to determine who built the most impressive estate. It all seems simple enough and not that different from any other game, but it's Carpe Diem's quirks that set it apart. The seven tile areas on the board are set out in a circle, with the paths connecting them crisscrossing the middle. Each space is connected to two others, and a player can only continue through a space if it has no tiles, otherwise they must choose from the spaces connected directly to them. So if you need a tile that's not next to you, you have to either try and plan a route to get there on a subsequent turn and hope it's still there, or spend precious bread tokens to go anywhere you want. But bread is much more valuable during the scoring phase, so it's a tough choice. Now I'll note that the crisscrossing paths don't actually add anything to gameplay, as they're functionally the same as just moving to adjacent spaces. I don't find route planning hard to parse, but the game can be played by simply moving around the circle, and I understand it may actually become this way in future print runs. But it's the end of round scoring where Carpe really sets itself apart. A number of scoring cards are laid out at the start of the game, and they come in a couple of types. Those that need resources to be turned in, and those that simply need a player to have built the proper features. Players place scoring discs on the intersection of two cards, and score both cards as many times as they're able. That disc remains there for the game, blocking the space, and making that exact combination of scoring cards available only once. With limited spaces 
to play, players need to plan carefully, as failing to meet the requirements of a card they've had to place by, well, that means negative points. But that's where the bread comes in. A player can turn in three bread tokens to fulfill a card once, letting them claim a card they'd otherwise lose points on. But as bread can be tricky to get a hold of, it's risky to rely on this. At the end of the game, you're going to go through the same type of scoring opportunities and then score a few extra things. And the most interesting of those are the frame points. Each player starts the game with four frame pieces that they randomly place around their estate board. These show different building or landscape types on lines running between their eventual tile placements. If a player has the right feature crossing a line somewhere along its length, then they're going to get the associated point. It gives players incentives to build in particular places, while not actually restricting their play too much. I really enjoy Carpe Diem. It moves nice and briskly, and setting up for each round simply means adding more tiles to the board and moving the first player marker. The variety of ways to score points makes for really interesting choices, and the variety of scoring cards makes each game feel different. It also feels like an earlier felt title, and I mean that in a good way. Carpe Diem felt comfortable and welcoming, while still providing some challenge, especially in my game group, because they're also irritatingly good. But that's not to say that everything's wonderful. Carpe Diem has some pretty big flaws, and they're all unfortunately due to production decisions. In general, the components are decent, though the coins and bread are a bit meh compared to other resources, and I've in fact replaced them in my copy. I've also replaced the tiny scroll chits that are placed on certain spaces with cubes because they're less easy to lose. But it's the graphic design and art that actually upsets me. Tiles are split into two types, supposedly distinguished by their backs. But the choice of dark and light green is meaningless, as the two shades are almost identical in good light and terrible to tell apart in other conditions. I took a silver sharpie to mine, but while an easy solution, it shouldn't have been required. On the tile fronts, there's a similar issue distinguishing gold buildings from brown ones, and this one I haven't quite figured out the best fix for. It's incredibly frustrating during play to plan for a particular tile and then realize too late it's not what you thought it was, and I've seen it happen almost once in every game I've played. But despite the irritation elicited by color issues, Carpe Diem has still managed to become a favorite already. I can get a lot of satisfying gameplay in a relatively short time. And with a lot of options to explore when it comes to how I approach a particular session, well, I'm not getting bored of it. The theme isn't particularly interesting, but between the tile laying and estate buildings, it feels reminiscent of the castles of Burgundy while offering an alternate set of mechanisms. I love sharing it with people, so let me know if you try it. And if we're ever in the same place, feel free to hit me up for a game. When I'm not agonizing over my choice of scoring cards, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Rather than trading in the Mediterranean, Yokohama is trading and route building in Japan. It was designed by Hisashi Hayashi and published in 2016 by Tasty Minstrel. It includes the work of three artists, the designer, Adam P. McIver, and Ryo Niyamo. The game recreates the Meiji period, which was about 1870 to 1910. Your goal in the game is to become the best merchant in the fishing village of Yokohama by scoring the most points. There are many things you can do to score points, making this a total point salad, but not one that feels unfocused. The most basic thing you can do is collect goods of various types to fulfill orders. You get points and other rewards from your order cards when you fulfill them, and your completed order also becomes an export that's going out to a particular country. Your countries will then form sets to score you more points at the end of the game. You can also collect countries by getting technology cards that give you special abilities. 
So how do you go about doing all of this stuff? Yokohama is similar in some ways to a different game called Istanbul, which Mason reviewed in episode 13. It's basically Istanbul on steroids. Both games have a modular board in which each tile has an action that you can do when you're there. In Yokohama, you have your president, which is your worker in a worker placement sense, and your assistants. On most of your turns, you will place three of your assistants on different tiles, or two on the same tile, and then move your president through a pathway of your assistants any number of tiles to the destination that has the action you want to do. Unlike Istanbul, you don't move your assistants with you, but the two games share a similar kind of route building. Once you're done moving, you're going to do a version of the action on that tile according to how many assistants you have with you in that location. More assistance means doing a stronger, better version of that action. You can also build permanent buildings that count toward the strength of your action on that tile as if they were assistance. The game rewards planning and patience as you accumulate your assistance and buildings in different locations, but it's also flexible enough that it doesn't feel punishing if you can't always do what you wanted. The player interaction in Yokohama comes mostly from blocking, since your president can't end their movement on the same tile as someone else's president. The size of the modular board varies according to the player count. Three is my favorite player count for this game because there's more interaction than two-player, but the board is less overwhelming than the four-player version. The two-player version does not have a tedious dummy player or any other awkward compensation for having fewer players. It simply blocks a couple of spots on separate boards. There are other pointsality things you can do besides fulfilling orders and creating sets of countries. There are two other boards, the Church and the Customs Management Board. They allow you to contribute goods and send one of your assistants to permanently occupy a space on that board, scoring you points and bonuses immediately and giving you a chance to score more at the end of the game. These boards have the feel of an expansion that was included in the base game. There are also public goals that everyone can work on achieving. If someone else gets to it first, you can still complete the goal for fewer points, which I appreciate. Tasty Minstrel has produced both a regular and a deluxe version of Yokohama. The wooden resource bits and metal coins in the deluxe version are great, but it's especially nice to have the wooden buildings. The board can look pretty cluttered, especially as the game progresses, and it's nice to have that 3D differentiation of wooden pieces as opposed to flat chits. You could easily use traditional Eurogame bits such as cubes or big houses as your buildings in Yokohama. I find the assistance in the deluxe version to be a bit fiddly and overly detailed, so for the first time ever, I downgraded my copy of a game and replaced the meeples with cubes. Soulless and wrong. Either way, this game is a huge table hog, so make sure you have a lot of space. There are a lot of different ingredients in this point salad, but similar to some flavors in Asian cuisine, they blend together very well. Once you absorb the game's initial complexity, the turns can actually become fairly streamlined because chances are you've already planned ahead on a previous turn. Even if someone blocked your first choice of actions, your remaining options are easily visible because you can see where your assistance and buildings are. It's satisfying to pull off an efficient series of actions that you masterminded several turns ago, and the game provides lots of different ways to accomplish things in your quest to become the best merchant. I'm Christy, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at D6CMarie. 
Matthias Kramer is probably most famous for his debut game Glenn Moore, an interesting tile placement affair that's arguably more popular for its rarity in the United States than its actual design. He also designed Rococo, a game that's really popular with people who've played it, but feels pretty underrated, if not outright obscure, in the grand scheme of the hobby. For me, his crowning achievement to date is Lancaster, but like Rococo, it doesn't have nearly the following it deserves. In the world of modern board gaming, Lancaster is already old. When Queen Games published it in 2011, worker placement was a venerated genre, having been introduced to the gaming scene in 1998 and popularized in 2005 by the now-classic Kalis. In the intervening years between 05 and 2011, there had already been several quote-unquote twists on the mechanism, but none quite so deliciously mean as Lancaster's Brawling Knights. Well, maybe Carson City, but that's a discussion for another time. Set in early 1400s England, players take on the role of noble houses squabbling for power under the ostensibly unifying influence of King Henry V. In a surprising bit of historical accuracy, the knights of these noble houses are little more than thug enforcers, and that's exactly how players employ them, sending them to collect money, maintain influence, sacrifice squires, and occasionally fight on England's behalf against the forces of villainous France, but only if it means glory for their house. All with the typical Eurogame goal of acquiring the most victory points. The way this theme drives Lancaster's twist on worker placement is by assigning a strength to each of the player's worker knights from 1 to 4. Each space on the board has a minimum strength requirement, which limits spaces early and requires careful allocation later in the game, but the real purpose behind a knight's strength, again, drawing on realism for a mechanism, is to use it to bully weaker knights. Unlike the standard placed worker blocks a space fair, in Lancaster you can steal a space as long as you play a stronger knight than the one currently occupying it. And if you really want to take a space from a stronger knight, your knight can bring along a cadre of disposable thugs, I, I mean squires, that are used up like the consumable resource they are. I'm not going to lie, the worker placement mechanism in Lancaster is real mean. It's not as punitively passive-aggressive as the provost in Kalis, but it might be jarring for people who aren't so keen on direct player-on-player -player action. It is mitigated some by personal spaces on your own player board you can't be booted out of, and a displaced knight can be replaced in the same turn so you're never fully denied a benefit from a knight. But if this fistfight mechanism were the only unique thing about Lancaster, it might feel a bit mundane. Enter the laws. Beside the main board is a display of three temporary rules that alter the game by offering players specific benefits that change over the course of the game, but they don't just passively rotate. Each round, players use influence they've gained through their actions to vote on whether to keep the current laws or enact new ones. The three laws up for vote are displayed on the same board, and each time one passes, it shoves out one of the existing laws. Scoring each law happens after voting, so you can spend the entire round staring not just at the current laws, but the potential newcomers, and you have to plan your actions according to how confident you are a specific new law will be enacted, or a specific existing law will survive the vote. Lancaster is almost an anti-worker placement, worker placement game. All the hallmarks of the big guys, like Lords of Waterdeep and Agricola, are still here, but subverted in ways that make for some hilarious interactions that almost always leave players at my table laughing and grumbling and smack-talking. Getting booted out of a space, or losing a beneficial law, or misjudging how other players will vote, all make for what is still one of the most unique, interesting experiences in the worker placement genre. Despite seeming on the surface like classic worker placement with some tacked on take that, Lancaster just gnaws at me until I come back for more, and I can't really ask for more than that. The base game can be found pretty easily for pretty cheap, around $25 US most of the time, which is a great deal, but the awesome expansions can be almost impossible to find at a reasonable price. I'm not a big fan of Queen Games' business practices, 
but their weird sale tactics do mean that you can usually find the Lancaster Big Box, which includes the base game in both expansions, for around 40 to 45 bucks if you catch it on Amazon at the right time. No matter my feelings toward Queen, that is an absolute steal, and you should jump on it if you see it. Used copies float around too, and even if you end up paying 60-ish bucks for the big box, I think it's worth it. If you're a fan of worker placement and want one with an interesting twist, or if you're not a fan and want to try one with a little more bite, I can't recommend Lancaster enough. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games pretty much everywhere, including BGG, Twitter, and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website, PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! Long-time listeners probably know by now that Wildlands is not my normal type of game. But having recently been smitten by Martin Wallace's Brass and Brass Lancashire, I thought, why not give this a try? And after buying it on a whim, Wildlands has quickly become a staple in our house, with my son regularly asking to play. In Wildlands, the capitalists fall and yada yada yada. Look, each player has a team of five badass characters who enter an arena to either collect crystals of their own color or destroy their opponents. Either way, through collected crystals, defeated enemies, or some combination of both, the first of five points wins. This is done through playing cards. Each deck has a bunch of cards with your character symbols on them. Any cards with your symbol can be used to move that character. Three matching symbols, and if your character is on a space with one of your crystals, you can pick it up. Alternatively, if the symbols have flags next to them, or flags across the bottom next to no symbols which are wild flags, you can do those actions. Some of these are physical attacks, some are range attacks, some are movement symbols, and some are defense. If you attack someone, they'll need a defense card to keep from gaining damage. If your character exceeds the amount of damage points on their card, your opponent gets to keep that figure as a point. Bummer. But the game balances out that loss a little because now you can use that lost character symbol as the three you use to pick up your own crystals. There is a lot of balancing in Wildlands. For starters, each faction is different. The guild are mostly quick with ranged and magic attacks, but are weak except for one really overpowered tank called Lunk. The pit fighters are strong, but have no ranged attack. The Gnomads are a mix of weak and strong, but they have the most rally cards which allow you to move multiple characters at one time, so they're best as a pack. And the Lawbringers are the most balanced with strength, ranged attack, and movement. And while this is not an asymmetrical game, each faction does require a slightly different playstyle though I've won with all four base factions. And further, I've won with multiple styles of play. You see, Wildlands plays very differently from two-player to four-player. In a two-player game, as most of my games have been, Wildlands is a very thoughtful game of getting your crystals and picking off any opponent they may wander too near. The base boards have 42 spaces on them, and in a two-player game, only 10 are occupied by characters and 10 by both sides' crystals. That leaves a lot of space for avoiding most confrontations, if you wish. But in a 4 player game, 40 of those 42 spaces are taken, so you can look at the board and assume that any empty space has a character in it that has yet to be revealed. Because in theory you only have to reveal one character at the start of your turn, each turn until they are all revealed. Furthermore, when you get your 10 location cards to choose your locations from, you pass the remaining 5 to your opponent to your left to be their crystal locations. This means that you should be able to set up some decent traps where you play one of your interrupts to stop their turn and attack them but this system kind of falls flat in a two-player game. Often no one is near enough that you can surprise them before you reach your fifth turn, by which all your characters have been revealed. But in a four-player game, expect to be interrupted and attacked regularly, which makes card management to be crucial. 
You only start with seven cards, and at the end of your turn you draw up to three cards, never going over the seven card total. So if you have a huge turn and burn through all your cards, well you're going to sit at three cards for a while and be a perfect target, especially as someone can interrupt before you draw your three cards. Now interrupt cards can also be played as either a wild movement card or to draw two more cards, which can help you get back to a full hand, but they can also be critical defense cards. Because if someone interrupts your turn, you can interrupt them after their first action, and then play does not go back to them. Interrupts are an interesting system that cascades with each interrupt, but jumps back to the top of the stack, to the player whose turn it was, after the player who last interrupted finishes. And this system is critical to keeping the game interesting, and you must always be on your toes and mindful of any fight you start. Because if all you do is wear someone down, you're likely just leaving them for someone else to finish and get that point. I have to say that I'm pretty happy with gameplay either at the more strategic 2 player level or the much more chaotic 4 player level. That my 7 year old can play Wildlands with very minimal help shows what a simple system Martin Wallace and Osprey have here, but that planning ahead, strategic use of higher ground and cover, and plans for mitigating luck have shown to be beneficial shows me that the simplicity of the system belies depth of play that can be appreciated by more experienced players. That said, I do have a couple niggles with Wildlands. For starters, I have a thematic question. If you're walking down a hallway that is marked as having no debris, how can you miss the yet unrevealed giant minotaur in that space? This has me perplexed. Second is the asynchronous aspect of playing five characters and having a fight or movement pause partway through as you run out of cards for that character. I understand this is common for this type of game and similar things happen in say 1775 or 1812 etc. I don't know why it bothers me more here. I guess there it's more of a temporary ceasefire while each side regroups. Here it just feels weird to me, but I'll certainly continue to play Wildlands despite that feeling. And third is that while the art by Alan Spiller and Jan Tisserun is fantastic, the details like the panoramas that the character cards make are amazing. Why are all the humans and half-human mythical creatures all Caucasian? This seems like an odd choice to me. I hope that changes in future expansions. And it's nice to see that Osprey has several new faction packs and map packs on their way this year. I think that's just what Wildland needs. I can see us getting a couple more factions and maps and continuing to play Wildlands for the foreseeable future. So that's Wildlands. If you have any further questions or comments about it, you're more than welcome to reach out to me on Twitter, at Mike Risley. Thank you for listening to The 5 By. If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 By Games, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 By Games, or join our BGG Guild, number 2810. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or follow all the links on 5bygames.com. The 5 By is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.